The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Okay, last week um, we did not finish um, the yellow sheet, so our yellow handout. So we're going to be starting there tonight. And what we've been doing, uh, we're talking about evangelism, the need to be faithful in going out uh, to share the gospel, faithful to make the most. I tell you this, there's no greater work that we can be involved in uh, than this uh, gospel work, the work of leading others to Christ. Um, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus has been gathering people into the kingdom uh, for thousands of years, 2,000 years. We don't say that it starts when he came. He was gathering people in the Old Testament as well. But uh, he has been, since he came to the earth, since that time, for 20 centuries, gathering people uh, into the kingdom. And so, therefore, what better work, what more vital work could we be involved in than the work of evangelism? It's a wonderful work. Uh, it's a work of eternal consequence. And therefore, because it's so valuable, so vital, it's also the most difficult work we can ever be involved in. I think one of the hardest things in the Christian life is to maintain our activity, our involvement in personal evangelism, to keep our edge sharp, to keep strong in our personal walks with Christ, to keep passionate toward uh, the lost, and to be willing to sacrifice so that people can be brought to Christ. It's not easy to do, is it? You know, people talk about issues uh, uh, like Reformed theology, believing in Calvinism and all that, and the effect that it has on, on um, evangelism. Let me tell you something. There's not a person, no matter what their theological system, that doesn't struggle with staying active and involved in evangelism. Do you find this to be a struggle for yourself? Is it easy to stay sharp, to always be ready to give an answer? Is it easy to do? I say it isn't. I say that the devil opposes it every step of the way. And uh, so do our neighbors, <laughs> the people we're trying to, trying to witness to. They don't want to hear it, and so they give you difficulty. But then I was that way too. You know, I was, I was difficult to witness to. There was a time. The Lord never lets me forget that. And, and by the way, that's fine, because remember how the Lord never let the Apostle Paul forget where he came from either. He's still writing about it in First Timothy, about how he was a blasphemer and a, and a persecutor and a violent man, but God showed grace to him as a pattern of the grace he would show to others. So I think it's okay to remember where you came from. So the Lord never forgets, lets me forget that the guy who led me to Christ, I abused him and was very unkind to him. Not physically, don't misunderstand me. He would easily have beaten me up. That was not the issue. But I was unkind to him. And uh, the Lord reminds me that it, it's not easy to bring somebody into the kingdom. We need to be faithful in witnessing. All right, so take the yellow booklet we've got. We're looking at it. We're looking at motives, why we should be involved in evangelism. We've already talked about some of them. First of all, the glory of God. The number one, the highest, greatest motivation for us is the glory of God. Tonight we're going to be looking at the yellow and the blue. So if you only have one, get the other. If you only have the other, get the one. Okay, that's what we're going to do. We're going, but we're starting in the yellow one. Okay? So the centrality of the glory of God, we already talked about. That's on page 11 uh, in the outline. Uh, the next thing we talked about after that was Christ's commands. Is obedience enough of a motive for us to evangelize? I would say it is. The Lord has given this command. Remember how, we said, all, how He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Now, I think that what he's saying there, among other things, is he has the right to command us. 
He says his yoke is easy. Take my yoke upon you. What he's saying is bend your neck to me. Let me be your king. I will give you commands. Well, he's given us the command. There are at least five versions of the Great Commission. There's one in Matthew, one in Mark, one in Luke, one in John, and there's one in Acts chapter 1. Five different ways, five different times, uh, the Lord gives us this command to make disciples, to evangelize, to share the gospel with people. So uh, obedience to Christ's command. Secondly, a motive for witnessing. Thirdly, human need. The people around us need the gospel. That's one thing I, fr- I frequently think about as we go door to door, as we try to share Say, Lord, lead me today to some family that's in great disarray because of sin and whose life will be brought in order because they come to faith in Christ. You think about that, how two, three years down the line, they could come back even with tears in their eyes and say, you will not believe the difference that's happened in our family since Christ entered. Since the the father, the husband became obedient to the gospel, since the wife the mother became obedient to Christ, the changes that have happened in our home. We were suffering and we didn't even know why and it, and it turned out it was sin. And we, can, we are the messengers of the gospel, of, of gospel peace. It's, the human need is overwhelming and I listed all those things on page 14, how people are spiritually dead already under the wrath of God. They're storing up even greater wrath with every passing day. Romans 2 says they are storing up the wrath of God. Um, the, the law, the conscience constantly accusing them. They don't have a sense of peace in their hearts. Not one good deed accredited to them. You know, that's something to keep in mind. The, the, the world's most popular religion is the religion of good works. That in effect, if your good works outweigh your bad, I mean, and there's, there are Muslim versions of this and Buddhist versions of this and atheistic versions of this, moralistic versions of that, but it's all the same religion. That if my good works outweigh my bad, that I'll be fine. If I'm basically a good person, that I'll go to heaven. The shocking truth they will discover on Judgment Day is not so much that their bad deeds outweighed their good. That is true, but it's especially true because they have no good deeds. It's not that their good deeds did not weigh the bad if they'd just done a few more good deeds. It's that none of their good deeds are counted or reckoned to their account. Not one. Because God looks at the motive. He looks at the heart. And none of them were done for the glory of God. Isn't that a shocking truth? And it's our responsibility to let people know the truth. We need to tell them this. Not one good deed. They are incapable of pleasing God. They are enemies of God. Incapable of atoning for sin. Blind and deaf to spiritual truth. Incapable of changing their hearts. They can change certain aspects of their lives. But Jesus said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Right? Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. Let me tell you something. A tree does not have power over itself to change itself. Does the tree have the ability to become a different kind of tree? It does not, but Almighty God does. Remember what, uh, what the Lord said after the rich young ruler went away, sad, went away sad and the disciples were shocked when Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. The disciples were astonished and said, who then can be saved? Remember what Jesus said? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What that means is he's the only one who can do the miracle of changing the essential nature of the tree. He can do it. We don't have that power, do we? We do not have power over ourselves to transform ourselves. Uh, You know, Jeremiah said, this is in Jeremiah 17, I think it is. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Neither can you who are accustomed to do evil. 
do good. It's not possible for us to change our essential nature. But God has that miracle working power. Isn't that wonderful? It, it takes a miracle for somebody to be saved. Never underestimate that. If you are saved, you're sitting here tonight, you have trusted in Christ, I believe a miracle has happened in your life. It's only explainable by the direct power of God. And the power of God for salvation is what? What is the power of God for salvation? It is the gospel. And therefore, we have, the, we have entrusted to us the very power of God for the salvation of those who believe. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So at any rate, incapable of changing, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is a powerful motivation, um, human need. Fourthly, the eternal issues that we're dealing with, heaven and hell. I don't know how far we got in all this, but you know, let's just start here on page 14. These are, there are infinitely high stakes involved in the outcome of evangelism. For each soul, eternity in heaven or hell awaits. Eternity. We can't conceive of it. We are so used to the sun rising and setting. We're so used to the shifting of the seasons. We're used to the ebb and flow of time. We cannot fathom eternity. But God has laid before our souls an eternity in hell or an eternity in heaven. And there is no third place. There's no purgatory. There's no third option. You're in hell or heaven uh, based on, the, on your response to the gospel ultimately. So for each soul, eternity in heaven or hell awaits. It is either a timeless experience of unmeasurable pleasure and joy in God's presence or a timeless experience of unmeasurable torment and agony under God's wrath. Other than the glory of God, let's keep that first, <laughs> other than the glory of God, what could be more important? I mean, really, when you stop and think about it, this is of eternal consequence. We are surrounded all the time by eternal beings. This is the point that C.S. Lewis makes in his incredible sermon, The Weight of Glory. What would it be like if you saw your neighbor, your brother, your sister, co-worker, the way they will be in eternity. I mean, think about it. When, when the facade of present earthly life is removed and they are what they will be eternally, you would either be shrieking in horror, aghast at what you see, or you would be tempted to fall down and worship them because they would be radiant with God's glory. You're dealing with eternal beings. Human beings are quite significant. They're created in the image of God, every one of them. So we're dealing with the, the, the weight of, of glory when you're dealing with a human being. So therefore, this, uh, the eternal consequence of life is a great motivation for, uh, for gospel ministry. Let's start positively. Let's start talking about heaven. All right? The basic idea of heaven can be summed up in one verse of Scripture, Psalm 1611. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Is it wrong for Christians to speak of eternal pleasures at God's right hand? Sounds almost like the Muslims talking about having 50 virgins and plenty of food to eat under a tree and all that kind of thing. Well, no, it's not wrong to talk about eternal pleasures because the Scripture does it again and again and again. But here it is in Psalm 1611. Eternal pleasures at God's right hand. Well, what could be better than that? So that, to me, that's what, what heaven is all about. And, and really, there is no higher, no greater, no better pleasure than God Himself. He is the pleasure of heaven. Not to say that there are not lesser pleasures, but there are. Uh, the pleasure of fellowship with one another. And I'm not insulted by you calling fellowship with me a lesser pleasure. That doesn't insult me at all. Okay, It is lesser. You will enjoy fellowship with God even more. And I also 
back again. And again, I'm not trying to be insulting to you. But uh, there are lesser pleasures in heaven and we will enjoy them. Just to see the new heavens and the new earth, the home of glory, won't that be something? To see this beautiful earth cleansed of the effects of sin, no longer uh, groaning under the bondage of decay, to see the beauty of the place, the home of righteousness, and it will, it will never change. It's an eternal state that we're talking about, new heavens and new earth. What a pleasure that will be. Now, what a marvelous thing awaits for us. The essence of heaven, then, is eternal life, John 17:3, And the essence of eternal life, according to John 17:3, is to know God and Jesus Christ. That's what it is, to know Him and to love Him. That's what heaven is all about. It is also a place of incredible beauty. Revelation 21, 10 and 11 uh, says, And He carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. As the new covenant is better than the old covenant, so the new heavens and new earth will be better than the present experience. Better. It's a better place. It'll be more beautiful in every way. I can't, I can't fully explain it because the Scripture only give, gives us a glimpse into what it will look like, but it will be a place of beauty. Uh, the Bible also says that God will create a new heaven and a new earth, as we've been mentioning. A new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. There's some debate as to whether God will evaporate the present earth and create a new one in its place or merely cleanse, thoroughly cleanse this present earth so much so that it's like a new earth. There's some debate back and forth. I tend toward the second position, even though there is language of rolling up like a garment and throwing away, because didn't God promise to Abraham and to his descendants the land forever? I wonder about that. You know, how did Abraham get it? Because it says in Hebrews 11, he did not. He died without receiving the promises. And so uh, God promised him the land. So to some degree, there's got to be some continuity. Uh, I don't know for sure. But one way or the other, we end up with a new heaven, new earth. Yes, go ahead, Susan. Second Peter, Second Peter, yeah, Second Peter three. Right. Those would be the strongest verses, verses for saying that everything's going to evaporate and disappear. You know, there's arguments on both sides, and that's why I can respect either way. Um, you know, we, we could say that you know God will create a new earth so much like the first one that, to some degree, then Abraham gets the promised land that God promised him. I don't know. Anyway regardless of whether we can resolve these things, whether all the elements will literally disappear and God will create new ones, all I know is I'm looking forward to being there. And it's going to be a glorious place, a beautiful place, uh, as it says in Second Peter, the home of righteousness. So good, good question. Let's talk about ten treasures that are awaiting believers in heaven. First of all, we shall be with Christ. John 17:24. Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Let me ask you a question. Do you want the same thing back? Do you want to be with Jesus and see his glory? That's the desire of a Christian heart, isn't it? Isn't it marvelous how the bride and the bridegroom have the same desire? Isn't it incredible how that's what Jesus has worked in us so that we end up wanting the very same thing he wants for us? Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. I want the same thing. I'm looking forward to that, to just be with Christ. Now, what could be better than that? Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And we shall be with Christ. We shall be with God. Secondly, we shall be like Christ. Most Christians would testify that the thing that brings them the greatest grief is their own corruption, their own sin. Uh, far more than any of the trials and difficulties we face from the outside in. These, if we're walking well with Christ, filled with the Spirit, actually only increase our joy because we see how well we're walking with Him in the midst of great suffering and trial. And it only actually increases our joy. But when we see the corruption within, we're brought to a level of grief that nothing else equals because we know we've betrayed Christ. We have not lived up to the calling we've received, etc. So therefore, one of the greatest gifts of heaven is to be free forever from that to be done disappointing ourselves and disappointing Christ, to be done with that forever. Will there be no more death or mourning or crying or pain and no more sin? We'll be done forever with that. We shall be like Christ. First John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. We shall be like Him physically. We shall be like Him emotionally. We shall be like Him mentally. We shall be like Him spiritually. We shall be like Him through and through. Whatever it is that God intended when He created us in His image will be perfected in our heavenly state. So far greater, frankly, than Adam and Eve experienced before they fell. We will experience the, perf the perfect uh, uh, resurrection body, the uh, perfect soul within us. We're through with the testing. We're done forever with that. And we are just like Christ. What an incredible future that is. Thirdly, as we've already mentioned to some degree, we shall be glorious ourselves. Perfect resurrection bodies and capable of being corrupted, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's the future of your body. Isn't that marvelous? Perfect souls, incapable of evil, Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all men, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Perfect spiritually, perfect, phys perfect physically, this is our future. We shall be glorious, and we shall in some way shine like the sun with some kind of radiance, some kind of glory, Matthew 13, 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I've often thought of this and I don't imagine that it's anything else than Christ's glory shining in and through us. Just like you have all the, uh, what is it, um, in the book of Revelation, transparent uh, gold. The gold is like glass. I don't know what that is. How do you have gold that's transparent? But I think what it means is just everything's kind of transparent up in the new heavens. And everything just is ready to receive the glory of Christ and, and uh, glow with it. And so I wonder if that's how it is with us as well. But uh, at any rate, shining brilliant radiance, we shall be glorious ourselves. Fourthly, we shall be in some sense fed, feasted, or entertained. You're saying, oh my goodness, is that really in the future? Well, <laughs> all right, how about Matthew 8:11? I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. If this were the only verse, you might stumble over it. But there are actually many verses that talk about the wedding banquet of the Lamb or the feast in the righteous. Jesus, Jesus says at the time of the Last Supper, He says, I, I, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day. I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I mean, there's so many uh, promises concerning just the, 
the fatness of heaven, the, the experience of being there. Uh, it's something to look forward to. Fifth, we shall have some sort of official duties, some responsibilities, and some kind of pattern of rulership as well. Second uh, Timothy 2, it says here is a trust, trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. See that? And then 1 Corinthians 6.3, do you not know that we will judge angels? All right. Sixthly, we shall know God intimately and perfectly. 1 Corinthians 13.12, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I believe that will be an eternal study. I really do. I think we'll be eternally learning God. I think at every moment we'll have a perfect knowledge of Him, but there's always more to learn because He's an infinite being. I don't believe we, we will be infinite beings in heaven. You know, we'll be infinitely perfect, if you want to say that, but I don't believe that our mental capacity will become like God's. And therefore, there's still going to be a baud rate, a down, down, download rate, and we'll not get it all at once. Uh, it being God Himself, He's an infinite being. And so therefore, I think it's an infinite study. Forever we'll be learning more and more about God. And this is how I make sense of the statement in Isaiah 9 of the increase of His kingdom and peace, there will be no end. How does Christ's kingdom increase forever and ever except in the minds and hearts of those who have been saved? Forever and ever we'll be increasing in our love and our knowledge of Christ. So uh, don't imagine for a moment when you get out witnessing and they tell you, the unbelievers tell you how boring heaven is going to be. There is nothing boring about being in heaven constantly studying God. What could be more interesting than the God who created the world that surrounds us? What could be more fascinating than God? So, I'm getting excited. You're probably wondering. I thought we were doing evangelism and we were just talking about heaven. We'll get to evangelism. Yes, go ahead. Very well. Very well. Perfectly, as a matter of fact. And I believe they'll maintain their uniqueness. I believe that people from each race, from each tribe and language will, will, will retain their unique attributes. It's just that all of us will be stripped, from, stripped of sin. There'll be no racism. There'll be no disharmony. There'll be no conflicts or arguments. God created each one of us in His image, but He made us different. And I think what's going to happen is we're just all going to bring in not just different races, but as you said, different eras in church history, coming from different backgrounds, each of them loving Christ in a, in a marvelous and a beautiful way. That's the best way I can. I don't think it's going to be like a Hindu thing where we all become like drops of water dripping into an endless sea and we lose our identity. Didn't Jesus say, I will give you a new name? Well, name means you're, you still have an identity. And so I, I think that we are going to be relating and it's going to be an incredible time. I'm looking forward to it. I've got a lot of questions to ask these Old Testament friends, so looking forward to it. Okay, number nine, we shall worship God continually. Revelation 5.13, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Now, if what I said a few minutes ago is true, that you'll be constantly learning new things about God, then there are going to be constantly new waves of worship flowing from you. You see? Because we believe in this idea of revelation and response. That's what worship is. God reveals, we respond. And so, therefore, there's constantly renewed worship in heaven. It's not like you're given one concept and for a trillion years you're going to be working on that one concept. You know, you think, I can't do that. 
You know, take your favorite food and think about eating it for a trillion years. You know, you think, oh, that's just the old way of thinking. We can't think like that. Instead, we have to think that, that worship will be constantly renewed as God reveals himself more and more. And then finally, we shall be free forever from all evil things. Not just our own sin, but other people's sin. Not just uh, our own corruption, but the corruption that has surrounded us. We're so used to it. I mean, my feeling is if you could just experience one hour totally free from temptation, corruption, and indwelling sin, I don't think you would even, uh, you would even know what, what, what it hits you. It's almost like a feeling of bliss. We are so used to the, the bondage that we struggle with all the time, and we'll be free from it. There'll be no evil around us, no evil in us. Revelation 21.4 says, There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, friends, for the old order of things has passed away. That's ten things about heaven. That's the future. That's the outcome of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know, as we're dealing with the gospel, you realize that we're also dealing with the issue of hell. And uh, there's not just heaven taught, but there's also the issue of hell. Turn the page. Skip this issue of the double, double blessing. I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to come back to it. But let's find out what we're talking about concerning, concerning hell. What did Jesus teach about hell? Well, first of all, you should know that Jesus taught about hell. Hell is not the purview of a hellfire and brimstone preacher. You know, somebody who came, up, came along is just trying to scare people scare tactics so that they'll believe in Jesus. That's not it. Jesus taught more clearly about hell than anyone else in the Bible. As I study all, all the sources of information biblically that we get about hell, more of them and more clarity came through Jesus than anyone else. Isaiah gives us some. Uh, you get some from Paul. You get some from the book of Revelation, definitely. But you get the clearest and most voluminous teaching about hell from Jesus himself. And I think the reason that he, that he did that is that he would personally experience it on the cross. He came to drink it on your behalf. That's what the wrath of God was that he drank on the cross. And so therefore, he had every right to teach us about it because he had come to rescue us from it. So Jesus came to deliver us from hell. First of all, let's say this. Hell is not a metaphor or a myth. It is the most terrifying threat that we face. So great is this danger that Jesus said gaining the world, if it meant losing our soul, was useless. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, What good would it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Now, first of all, let's talk about this issue of a metaphor. What is a metaphor? You talk about the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and some scholars tell us that's just a metaphor. Okay, let's go with that for a minute, shall we? What is a metaphor? A weak picture. What do you mean by a weak picture? picture that's not true. It's a picture that's not true but conveys some essence of the thing you're trying to communicate. So the reality is greater or less than the metaphor? Greater. Okay, so let's go with the idea that the lake of fire is only a metaphor. That means the actual experience is worse than the metaphor. That's the whole point. It's not like if you just say it's just a metaphor, then realize, okay, there must be a reality that's worse than that because that's what the whole issue with Language just captures, a, you know, can you sum up a human being in a word or a poem? No. They're greater than the words you use to encapsulate the truth. The Himalayan mountains are high. I just spoke words to you. You have to see it, though. You know what I'm saying? It, it, the words reduce just so you can get a concept. 
And so therefore, God has encrypted the experience of hell into words. The actual experience will be infinitely worse. That's the whole point. So if you can imagine yourself swimming in a lake of burning sulfur, hell will be worse than that. Yes, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm not going to be very, I think there's a difference. Um, you know, immediate eschatology, namely what happens to an individual who dies right now, what happens to them as soon as they die, it's difficult to know. We know that it says absent from the body, present with the Lord. We also imagine that, uh, that lost people go to some form of suffering. But I believe that both of those experiences are less than the final experience. For the righteous person, it's less because they don't have their resurrection body yet. Uh, for the unrighteous person, it's less because they don't have their, I don't know what kind of body it is, but there's also a resurrection of the wicked in John chapter 5. So both of them go to either bliss or torment, but it's somehow reduced. Uh, the sequence of revelation seems to be that the lake of fire is yet in the future, uh, that people are not experiencing it now. But if it turns out the opposite, I, I don't know. All I'm saying is that, that we are in time and we're moving from generation to generation. I don't know what happens as soon as these folks go, but I believe they go to one experience or the other. There's no waiting place. But Jesus means the lake of fire in Revelation. If you use the word hell, yes. You know, that's, yeah. Yeah. Well, he speaks of Gehenna, for example. It's a, this burning pit which was constantly burning all the time. It's where they threw out the garbage. Jerusalem is like a, a valley and they had all this nasty stuff and just burning all the time constantly burning. So always there's this issue of burning. The, the burning is a big part of it. Okay? Uh, he urged us, Jesus urged us to fear God who has the power to throw us into hell. Luke 12, 4 and 5 says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He said that it would be better to be horribly disfigured in life than to be thrown in hell. Matthew 18, 7-9 says, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown in the fire of hell. You know, you imagine physically doing what Jesus suggested. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that gouging out your eye would not stop you from sinning. But still, he's using an analogy, a way of speaking. And what he's saying is that the battle against sin should be so fierce that you would be willing to do anything. That's how deadly. And ultimately, behind all of what Jesus is saying is how horrible hell is. So it's just much better to enter life maimed or crippled than to go to hell. That's what he's talking about. Now, let me ask a question. If some, some professor or commenter, scripture commenter or pastor or somebody comes along and tells you there is no hell and Jesus is just speaking metaphorically, and that, who are you going to believe, them or Jesus? That's the whole point. Jesus didn't come to mince words. He was very intense about what he came to do. He came to save us from hell. Therefore, he needed to teach us about hell, that from which he was saving us. He taught us that hell is a place of eternal torment. It's of a burning that will never cease. It's not a neutral place. Okay? It's not neutral. It's a place of active torment. 
Hell is the place, it says, where the fire never goes out. Hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's what Jesus said. The fire never goes out, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Then in Luke 16, in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. And he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now this was a man who in his life had all the best things. He was a connoisseur of the good life. But at this point, all he wants is somebody to dip their finger in water and put it on his tongue. You can imagine the torment that you'd be in where that's all you want is just somebody to do that just for an instant. It is a place of also of eternal regret about the way they live their lives. I get this out of the expression in Matthew 8.12, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe that there's a memory of how it was. You think about it this way. Suppose on Judgment Day, the Lord condemns an individual, but then brings up the fact that He sent you to them on such and such a date, such and such a time, to share the gospel. And they didn't listen to you. Forever, they will wish they had that moment back. Forever. They will be regretful that they did not repent and trust Christ. Doesn't that heighten the seriousness of your encounter with them? It's a serious moment when you're sharing the gospel with somebody. It really is. You don't know as the evangelist that they'll get another chance to hear the gospel, do you? You don't know that for sure. So therefore, I believe it's not a place of forgetfulness. It's a place of remembering and regret. Did you want to say something, Darcy? Is that a regret that comes from an intended heart or more think I don't think it's a change of heart. I, I just think it's a, it's a place of torment. And I think the pain is not just physical. I think it's psychological. It's a mental pain. And I think, therefore, you know, it's not too much to, to think that some of it is they wish that they had an opportunity to repent, but they don't. Now, I know that other verses uh, teach, like in the book of Revelation, that they howl in anger and, and all this sort of stuff. But I don't know that that's not while they're still on earth and suffering the various bowls and vials of the book of Revelation. But uh, I think that they're corrupt within and they're angry and they never give to God a sense of justice that, he, that they're getting what they deserve, etc. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, look at Luke 16, 25. Abraham replied, Son, remember. See that word? This is Abraham talking to Lazarus. Remember that in your lifetime you had your good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Do you see that word? Remember. That's all I'm getting at. Remember. He will be able to remember what it was like in his life. It's a place of regret. Jesus stated also that hell was created originally for the devil and his demons or angels. Scripture also reveals that the devils live in abject terror of hell. I hate it when those cartoons show the devils kind of enjoying hell. It's like their native habitat. You know how like certain lizards like it 120 degrees or something? I mean, do not imagine that. God created hell as a place of punishment for the devil and his angels. Don't you think he knows what he's doing? And are they presently suffering in that place of torment? No. They're given measure of freedom to torment us and tempt us. The devil is uh, roaring, roaming around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's filled with rage, the Bible says, because he knows his time is short. The devil said to Jesus, have you come here to torture us before the time? Right? So they're not there yet. Now, there, some say that there are some 
angels that are suffering in Tartarus, that again in Second Peter. And I think that that's just a reduction in freedom and maybe some kind of punishment from God short of hell. But at any rate, in the future, the devil and his angels will be thrown in there. How would you like to spend eternity with the devil? I mean, you can, you can, if you can even imagine that, just swimming around, bumping into him from time to time. It's, it's, an, it's an inconceivable thing. It's really horrible. Now listen, it says in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh, by the way, there's another teaching about hell. And it centers on this word eternal. John Stott and some others have said what about hell? It's not eternal. You're there for a while and then you're done. You're out and everybody's saved in the end. Now, why do you think they teach this? Why do you think a good, I mean, in, in all, as far as I know, all other respects, a good and faithful Bible instructor like John Stott. Say again? It sounds too painful. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where you begin to wonder, you could be tempted to begin to wonder about God. You say, is, is human sin really worth this? You know, because you, you blasphemed or, you, or just because you didn't believe the gospel. Is it worth eternity of screaming forever and ever? And, you know, it'd be almost like, you know, you're seven years old and you have a, a big brother who's in college and, and he's like the world champion, you know, black belt karate expert and, and some eight-year-old beating up on you and he shows up and just, you know, and after a while, like, okay, you know, enough because it's just so horrible what's going on, the power and all that. But I think here's the thing. I think we just don't understand the glory of God and how great is his person and how great is sin. We underestimate sin. We just do. We think of it as no big deal. It's just a small thing. It isn't a small thing. Look what sin has done in the world. Look at the suffering, the river of suffering that's come from it. At any rate, in the end, no one will be able to accuse God of injustice. He is a just being, perfectly just and righteous. Susan. Well, that's, yes, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. Yeah, and I think the Seventh-day Adventists, actually this has come up with a friend of mine, and yeah. she is struggling with that. Yeah. Uh, do the, are there any scriptures that support that idea? I mean, it seems pretty clear from the ones you stated here that it's an eternal state of torment. Well, it says, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then it says at the end, then these will go away to eternal su suffering, but the righteous to eternal life. Well, you know, there's a kind of a parallelism there. Do, do you notice it? Eternal suffering, eternal life. So if the suffering's temporary, is the life also temporary? We would hope not. And so, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, I've heard different people theorize about God's presence. Is, is God present in hell because he's omnipresent? Or is the presence of God absent from hell? I don't know if you had any... Well, I mean, in one sense, you think that God has to be there because it's part of his universe. Um, but I also think relationally, he's as far from you as you could imagine. You know how it says the, the wicked he knows from afar? Well, how does God know the wicked from afar? Because relationally, he's distant from them. He's very, very, very far from them. So I would think then in hell, he's infinitely far from them relationally. They have no experience of God, no positive one. So, Stephen, just a second. Uh, Yeah, I mean, they, they try to make a case, but there's so much evidence the other way um, that yeah, I don't, it's not convincing. Peter? Um, I know Jonathan Edwards in Sinners and Hands of Anger God said that his eternal, his eternal wrath shall forever be on them, and that's what's going to be so 
torturers to them because that's going to be his wrath. That's yeah. why his Tabetsuit is going to be present on them. So that's a terrible thing. I mean, when you think about it, it's a terrible thing to have God's omnipotence devoted eternally to your destruction. I mean, that's just a scary thought. You think about like this powerful laser that concentrates down and just can just cut right through plates of steel or something like that. You know, to have God focus his anger on you as an individual. At any rate, Jesus died in our place that we might avoid this terrible penalty. That's why he came, to, to, that we might avoid it, that we might not go to hell. Um, most of the people we will witness to underestimate how ho horrible hell will be. To be honest with you, so do we. I mean, I, I've tried to explain from the script, scriptures tonight what, the, what it says, but we, we underestimate it. And so they, they underestimate it too. They make jokes about it, if you, can, if you can even imagine that. They do. They make jokes about it. So well, all my friends will be there. Well, first of all, I want to say I hope not. I really hope not. And I hope you won't be there either. But even if they are there, don't imagine that you'll be able to party with them as you told me a moment ago that you will because you'll be too busy screaming at the top of your lungs. And so will they. So there's, it's a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. And you might say, is this a little kind of heavy-handed and all that? Is it? Is this rhetoric and this effort um, equal to the seriousness of what we're talking about? I would think it would be. Jesus said, cut off your hands and feet rather than go to hell. So how about using some rhetoric to get people to, to uh, deal seriously with it? The Bible clearly warns us of the condemnation that awaits all who have not repented and trusted Christ. The language is so consistent that it cannot be misinterpreted and so terrible that it cannot be ignored. If Christ so, uh, spoke so much of hell, we must also. We must also allow it to motivate us in our passion for the lost. Now, let's go back to the idea of a double blessing or a double curse. Okay, I've talk, taught about this before, but it's worth mentioning now. The way it works is this. Heaven is so magnificent, so wonderful, so incredible, so sweet, that if you were not suffering in hell, but merely conscious and not included it would be like a form of torment to be on the outside of the gates of heaven. Do you understand what I'm saying? Have you ever felt sad that you were left out of some marvelous thing? I mean, think about when you were a kid and you weren't invited to a party. Or, you know, you could imagine poor people walking by hearing at Christmas time a sound of a feast going on and they're not included. All right? Well, take that and multiply it by whatever, a million. And you're there on the outside if there were no hell and you were not included. You're not involved. You're not welcome. You're on the outside. Wouldn't that not feel like a great suffering to you? And therefore, those that are suffering in hell aren't just suffering in hell. They also aren't in heaven. You see what I'm saying? So it's a double curse. And hell is so horrible, so awful, so devastating, that even if there were not an experience of heaven as we've described, and you were merely kind of neutral, and you were not thrown into the lake of fire. You would consider it an eternal blessing to not be in there suffering what you deserve. And so therefore, those in heaven get a double blessing. They don't go to hell and they are in heaven. And so the stakes are that high. Double curse or double blessing. That's what we're talking about. And the only thing that can change the, the matter, the, only, the key to the whole thing, according to Romans 1.16, is the gospel. You understand? It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It is the gospel. It's not their good works or religiosity. They would pray more or give more. It's none of that. We already know. It's got to do, they've got to believe the gospel. And if they haven't heard the gospel, they can't believe it. And that's where preachers come in. People 
evangelists like you all, (laughs) that's where you and me, that's where we come in. We share the words of life and they can actually have their, their state transferred from one to the other. That's the language. Rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the sun he loves. Is that motive enough? What do you think? That's only motive number four. We've already got the glory of God, the command of Christ, the state, the neediness of the unbelievers, and then eternity, heaven and hell. All right, number five, urgency. Today is the day. God has not promised any of us that we will be alive tomorrow. Jesus said in John 9, 4, We must work as long as it is day, said Jesus, for night is coming when no man can work. You have a limited amount of time to be involved in the harvest. You realize that? There's no harvesting going on by those who have died and gone ahead of us. They're done. They're done with their work. They put down their tools and they're, they're done. Their time is done. Okay? Uh, James 4, 13 through 17 says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. I always thought that was interesting. Today or tomorrow? What does that show about the... What's the attitude of the person who's saying, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city? Okay. There's no urgency. Say again. Yes, today or tomorrow are equally certain, right? So you can do it today or you can do it tomorrow. It doesn't matter. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a sermon called The Folly of Procrastination. All right? Uh, Because we don't know that uh, we will have that opportunity says, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live. Uh, you know, I've always thought it's good to just kind of pause there for a moment because we're so into what we're doing, you know, so into our activities. I know the verse says, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Well, don't get to this or that yet because you can't do this or that unless you live, right? So let's start there. If it is the Lord's will, I will live. I mean, you ought to say that to yourself. Often. You know, if you say it a lot to your friends, they'll think you're morbid. (laughs) Think you have a death focus. You know, there's something odd about you. You're a little bit pathological. But you ought to say, according to James, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. You boast about tomorrow, right? All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Can we include evangelism in that? I mean, this is a course on evangelism. Do you know the good you ought to do? Are you doing it? Am I? That's the thing I have to ask. And if not, then we sin. And I think the procrastination comes to us too. We might know some unsaved relatives, some unsaved co-workers, people that we know that need the gospel. And we're presuming on tomorrow. We're presuming we'll have an opportunity sometime in the future. And I'm just saying, don't presume. You just don't know. That's why you have to make the most of the encounters that you have. And if you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, then you sin. That's called the sin of omission, right? You didn't do something. Hebrews 3.15, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. That is such an important verse. It's important for the unbeliever. If they hear the Savior calling on them to come, hear the Savior saying, follow me, and they say, I can hear it, I sense it, I'm just not ready. I'm just not ready, like Felix in Acts 24. You know, or Agrippa saying, you know, can you persuade me in such a short time to become a Christian? Paul says, short time or long, I wish that you would be like me except these chains. 
you know. And it's interesting, he doesn't, we talked about this in the men's Bible study, he doesn't answer Agrippa's question. Do you think, Paul, in such a short time, you can persuade me to be a Christian? He says, short time or long, I wish that everyone who hears me, blah, blah, blah. Does he answer his question? He doesn't know. He had no way of knowing whether he can persuade Agrippa to become a Christian. Agrippa is the one who's going to tell him that. You tell me. Can I persuade you in a short time to become a Christian? But the fact is, you know, uh, we don't know for a fact that we will have another opportunity with the individual. Turn it around. They themselves don't know that they'll be alive tomorrow. They don't know. They don't know. They don't know that they'll be alive tomorrow. Is it melodramatic to say that to somebody who's quavering and saying, I don't know, I'm not ready, and all that? Say, well, as you work it through, <laughs> as you pray it through, consider this. You don't know if you'll be alive tomorrow. You should have done a good job up to that point of explaining what will happen if they die tonight, not having yet made that commitment to Christ, that they will be lost forever. So you might want to you know, urge them in that direction. <clears throat> so we don't know. They don't know. And furthermore, even if they live another 60 years, they don't know that their heart will be the same tomorrow. As a matter of fact, if they harden their heart and they pull away a little bit, they may never have the same opportunity again. Never. Every moment means something. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Do you see that? It's amnesty time now. Now is the time of God's favor. Now. He's saying that, isn't he? Isn't he speaking that? Doesn't he say in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we as God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you be reconciled to God. So God is saying through us to the, the person who's weighing whether he's going to become a Christian. He is saying, now is my time of favor. Implying what? Later, I'm not saying, you know, a year or five years, but I mean on judgment day will not be my time of grace. That's not the time of grace then. That has nothing, there's no opportunity for grace, no chance for repentance. It is, it's done because you will see him. You'll see him. And if you see him, then you can't believe in him. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things what? Not seen. So if you're seeing Jesus sitting on his white throne, you cannot have faith. The time for faith is over. And we are justified by faith. So therefore, you must act before you see him while there's still time. So now is the time of God's favor. The apostles therefore preach with passion, pleading, and tears. With many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Romans 9, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 2 Corinthians 5, since then we know the terror of the Lord. We try to persuade men. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Acts 20, 31, remember that th for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Philippians 3, 4, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. That's Paul's emotional response to the lostness of the people he sees around him. So there's a passion there. Yes? Sure. Passion. 
<clears throat> pleading, tears. 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 Yeah, I, I say to you honestly that I come short of this frequently in my gospel presentation. You know, it's embarrassing. I mean, to really wear your heart on the sleeve. I mean, it's awkward. Uh, think about it. Think if you did this to, you know, a, a lost coworker or, you know, your boss. You know, they'd look on you as emotional and unstable or something like that. And I'm not saying that there's always, every time in witnessing, a place for this. But I want to turn it around and say, let's start here. Have you ever done this? I mean, has this ever been a part of your heart toward a lost person? Tears, passion, pleading? There needs to be some of that. All right, sixth, our accountability, Judgment Day assessment. On Judgment Day, we will have to give an account for every decision made on earth. I hope that doesn't trouble you. I've gotten grief over this before from Christians. They're troubled by this concept. They come to me and tell me, but it says in Romans 8.1 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, come on. You guys are logical people. Tell me the logical fallacy here. There's a... That's right. There's a difference between giving an account and being condemned. Do you see that? Do you know that? There just is. You are called upon, will be called upon to give an account. For what? For what? Everything that's a matter of stewardship. Everything entrusted to you. And what is that? What types of things are entrusted to you? Everything. Your, your faith, your, your capability, your time. You know, people give the three T's, time, talent, and treasure. You know, those are things entrusted to you. Opportunities are entrusted to you. That's the, that's the one that really gets me. Because each day is, has its own unique opportunities that will never be repeated. You know, and we're accountable for what we did with those. And so there's an accountability. We're going to give to the Lord an accounting. We must seek by the power of the Spirit to minimize our regrets on that day and to maximize our fruit. Minimize the regrets. Do you think you'll have no regrets? None? What do you think? Have you lived a totally regret-free life? <laughs> Zero regrets. Have you made the most of every opportunity? If not, learn from it, okay? You will probably cry when you see it again on Judgment Day. You probably will. But then what will he do? He will wipe every tear from your eyes and you'll be done with it. Praise God. Or else heaven couldn't be heaven, right? We're not going to be forever crying over missed opportunities but we will cry over missed opportunities. You see the difference? Not forever, but there will be a day. And all I want to do is just minimize my regrets. I want to minimize them. I already know that I have some regrets. I already know it. I already know there's opportunities I can never have again. Some people have died. Uh, some opportunities have passed. I'll never have those chances again. I know that. But I just want to, I want to make the most of today. And if God gives me tomorrow, I want to make the most of tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own, Jesus said. Also, each day has enough good deeds of its own as well. There's only so many good deeds that God has arranged, Ephesians 2.10, for you to walk in. Let's do them all. What do you say? 100% of them. Would you like to bat a 1,000 tomorrow? Get every single one of your good deeds done. Wouldn't that be great? be the first day of your life. <laughs> no, no offense. Mine too. I mean, do, do them all. Think about Jesus who did them all, all his life. Every one of the good works God wanted him to do. I just want to minimize my regrets. Not only... Yes, go ahead. Where do you find um, in Scripture the regrets 
in the sphere of government establishment? Well, uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 5, the key thing, it says uh, that we'll have to give an account for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. It's the or bad that gets me. If you have to give an account for the things done in the body, even the bad things, then it says in Revelation, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Some people say, well, that's just from all the suffering that goes through. I think that there's that, but I'm just putting those things together. My feeling is, how will you feel to give the Lord an account of the bad things you did? You're talking about Second Corinthians five. Second Corinthians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First uh, Corinthians five is the man caught with yeah. sinning. So yeah. that somehow, as a result of either the good or the bad, mm-hmm. we will be praising God that we were able through His grace right. to do well, and praising God that He covered over the missed opportunities by His grace. And in that state, probably that mental state, we will spend eternity. What I'm asking is, is there something that we go through before that? And I think there is. And probably another strong verse on this is in 1 Corinthians 3, where it talks about wood, hay, and straw. Gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw. It says, if what he has built burns up, he will suffer loss. That You just take that and meditate on that phrase. He will suffer loss. When do we feel the loss? I don't want to feel it eternally, so it must be on Judgment Day when I give an account. I will sense at that point something was lost. There was something that we could have done, I could have done. And I think at that point it would be reasonable to have an emotional response to that loss. That's all. But we ourselves, it says, would be saved uh, yet as one escaping through the flames. Just read it. First, First Corinthians 3 talks about that. It's a good question. Let's keep going. Uh, not only will we have to account for wrongdoing, but we will also be rewarded for whatever we have done by faith. God expects us to do specific good works which he has prepared for us. Ephesians 2.10, we've already talked about. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, as we do these, we store up treasure in heaven. Uh, Matthew 6. Uh, you, can, you can read that. Um, our reward, I believe, is nothing less than praise from Almighty God himself. As Nikki was just saying, I think there's, you know, that those things that we do will redound to praise to Almighty God. And also, not only that, but He will praise us. At that time, each will receive His praise from God. Notice the preposition there. Is there going to be any praise for God? Well, yes, of course. You'll spend eternity doing that. Praise for God. But this speaks of praise from God. That God is doing the praising. And that's remarkable, isn't it? It says in John 12, my father will honor the one who serves me. Wow. And that's something to be honored by God. He doesn't give it lightly and he's no flatterer, but he gives it all by grace. Don't think for a minute that any of us will deserve it. But yet at the same time, he's promised it to us. So that's a beautiful thing. And it says in Matthew 25, 21, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. You know, when I look at that, there's there's a kind of an overarching, like eternal state. Come and see how to do happiness because I know how to do happiness. None of you know how to do happiness like me, God is saying. So enter into the joy of your master. God is a happy being. Isn't that wonderful? And he's going to teach us forever how to be happy. He's, he's the expert in the universe on happiness. So enter into the joy of your master is like, just come to heaven. But then it could be at a lower level. Enter now and experience the joy I had when you did those good works on earth. 
when you went into the room and closed the door and prayed to your father who was unseen, or when you didn't let your left hand know what your right hand was doing and you gave to the poor and no one noticed, or when you sacrificed and witnessed to somebody and nobody saw how difficult that was for you, but you overcame your fears and you went and witnessed to your, to your boss <laughs> or to your mother or to a total stranger at the airport. God knows how tough that was for you and how you overcame by faith. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm pleased. I'm happy. Enter into the joy that I felt at that moment and enjoy it forever. Isn't that a marvelous thing? So my feeling is we should store up treasure in heaven by doing lots and lots of those good works by faith. Paul spoke also of his converts as his crown. First Thessalonians 2. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have some people in heaven who will testify they are there at the human level because of you, because you shared the gospel with them? To me, that is powerful motivation. All right, what are our motivations? The glory of God. We evangelize for the glory of God. We evangelize out of love and obedience to Christ. We evangelize because people have no hope without the gospel. We evangelize because infinite issues of heaven or hell await the outcome. We evangelize because time is urgent. We evangelize because of our own judgment day assessment. All right, that's all the instruction tonight. I've spoken to you about the three-by-three ministry that's described here. Basically, I'll give you one more week. I've got a little uh, sign-up sheet here. And all that I'm going to do, let me me describe to you what I mean. All I'm going to do is I'm going to pass this thing around next week, God willing. And you would sign up and say, I need help getting, I I want you to match me up with two other people and we can pray and hold each other accountable. Or you will sign and say, I've already done that. You know, I've got two other people. Or you will pass the clipboard. One of those three things. And I will not watch as you're doing that. I won't, I won't do that. I'm not, I don't have a roster of the class or any of that. But why would you not want to be held accountable by friends of your own choosing, you know, who will pray for you to witness to three people or pray? Actually, you're not even praying that you would witness. That idea may creep in your mind. It may, okay? But you're just praying that they'll come to Christ, that someone will witness to them. You're praying for nine people. So that's next week. We'll do that next week. Any questions in like four seconds or less? Any questions? Anything quickly? You were going to ask a question, weren't you, Susan? Yeah. Go ahead. Maybe you talked about this last week, but for you, do you um, see the Holy Spirit has made it clear, the Lord has made it clear you are to tell everybody about the gospel that you encounter? And, or is it that you're waiting for some sense of God's leading? Because I'm passing a whole lot of people I know I do too. I may feel some really strong I can't answer that question. I don't want to say you don't need to witness to everybody you see. I don't know that I have the authority to tell you that. I think there actually are some people who would be called on to do that. Um, but what I do want to say is that we should be witnessing to far more people than we are. And that there are people that pass us by that God has set up, I believe, at one level providentially. And you are the messenger. And I don't believe God's plans are thwarted by our our sin. But I do believe that we can harden our hearts and not do things God's called us to do. So I just want us to be far readier, Susan, than we are. That's all. Beyond that, if you want to roll down your windows and at every stoplight, hey, you know, I mean, you want to do that? I mean, let us know. I want to hear the stories. I think that would be be exciting. Let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study tonight. Father, I pray that you would please take these thoughts that come from your word and press them into our hearts. Help us, O Lord, to get over our fears, to get over our self-focus, 
to get over what, what we fear will happen to us if they reject us, Lord, and realize that none of those things really are even close to being important compared to the weighty things we've discussed tonight. Help us, O oh Lord, to have compassion on the lost. Help us, O oh Lord, because we love lost people, because we, we know what it was like when we were lost, to reach out because of the misery in this world and in the next, and the joy in this world and in the next that come as a result of this gospel ministry. So help us to be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.